said we're headed to war in Iraq. You said we're Why you say that? I hope we're not headed to war in Iraq. I hope we're not headed to war. I hope we're not headed to First, we get to the side. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 14th day of September, 2007. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome new listeners to the Corbett Report. I direct you to my website, www.corbettreport.com, where you can find not only today's episode, but also links to the documentation cited in today's episode. Every time you hear an interesting fact, please note the time index, and under the documentation tab for that time index, you'll be able to find a link to the document itself. I'd also like to draw your attention to the articles function of our website, which is being updated five times a week, including a weekly article by Dictator Hader, a special correspondent for the Corporate Report who is submitting one article a week. Corporate Report also invites listener submissions of articles and material, so please contact us through the contact function of the website. I'd like to start today by talking about something that's very much in the zeitgeist. Simply type Bush Hitler into the Google, and you'll find numerous, in fact over two million references connecting the two. Perhaps even more revealingly, Type Bush Hitler into the Google image search, and you'll find countless artistic takes on the idea that Bush and Hitler are not so different as it might at first glance appear. As I say, this is very much part of the zeitgeist, and the politically informed amongst us know that Hitler ordered the burning of the Reichstag in 1933 in order to secure a consolidation of power which would eventually make him dictator and George W. Bush was complicit in the 9-11 attacks, which is the consolidation of power for the neocons in government at the moment, as they extend their grip across the globe. There are numerous articles, speeches, and documentaries available online, drawing out the similarities between 1930s Nazi Germany and living in America in the present age. And as much as the dwindling neocon support base would like you to believe, this is not the work of wild-eyed leftist nuts but has even surfaced in extremely mainstream places. To demonstrate this fact, I'd like to turn to a clip from Wolf Blitzer's Situation Room on CNN, in which he interviewed George Soros. George Soros was, of course, born in Hungary, 
escaping Nazi persecution by fleeing first to England and eventually to the United States, where he became known for his Soros Fund Management, which was enormously successful and has made him a very wealthy man indeed. In this clip from Wolf Blitzer's Situation Room, Blitzer brings up a quote from a recent book by Mr. Soros, which compares the Bush regime to the Nazis and the communists and other dictatorial societies. Let's turn to that clip from CNN's Situation Room. And one of the world's wealthiest men has written a book with comments very, very critical of the Bush administration. Let's talk about your new book, The Age of Fallibility, Consequences of the War on Terror. I want to read to you a quote that sort of startled me, I'm sure a lot of your readers, once they read it. The Bush administration and the Nazi and communist regimes all engaged in, engaged in the politics of fear. Indeed, the Bush administration has been able to improve on the technique used by the Nazi and communist propaganda machines by drawing on the innovations of the advertising and marketing industries. Mm -hmm. Now, when a lot of people hear comparisons between President Bush and Nazis and communists, they're going to say, George Soros, you've gone over the top. Yeah. Uh, you actually picked up the most incendiary part of the book, and uh, I am very careful to draw a, a clear distinction between the Nazi regime and our, uh, our open society, because we are a democracy. Uh, but there are some similarities in the propaganda methods which I pointed out. But, but George Soros, you yes. lived through the Holocaust. Yes. You know firsthand what the Nazis were doing. You lived through the Cold War, the worst of the Stalinist era. To make comparisons between the President of the United States and, and these regimes, uh, a lot of people are going to say, what are you thinking? Well. That, unfortunate, that is unfortunate because I think there are some serious arguments about our open society being endangered by the policies followed by the Bush administration. Uh, the, the war on terror, which does not have an end, uh, changes. Uh, it, it, it leads to an undue extension of executive powers. It has stifled debate, criticizing the president, this considered unpatriotic. And as a result, we have been following policies which endanger our position. A lot of people world. will agree with you yeah. on that. Yes. But where they, where they will starkly disagree is to then bring in the whole Nazi and communist comparison. Uh, you, you are actually, it's a valid point. And, and uh, maybe I did go over the line, uh, but I think that uh, on the whole, my assessment is a balanced one. Uh, and the fact, frankly, uh, when uh, President Bush said, you are either with us or, or you are with the terrorists, that that's when I was reminded. But I should have probably kept it to myself. Hmm, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Yeah, that's a good point. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah. I have brought peace, freedom, justice, and security to my new empire. Your new empire? Don't make me kill you. Anakin, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. 
I will do what I must. You will try. All kidding aside, make of the George Bush-Darth Vader connection what you will. And incidentally, the Corbett Report will have more to say on that in the coming weeks and months. But I hope that CNN clip at least demonstrates that the Bush regime-Hitler regime link is firmly established in the collective consciousness. As usual today, that is not enough for the Corbett Report. I am here today to tell you that the links between the Bushes and the Nazis of 1930s Germany in fact, go much deeper than that. I'd like to turn to the most mainstream of mainstream news sources, the fair and balanced Fox News, for this story. And here's a Fox News story that actually I agree with. Here's the headline from this Friday, October 17, 2003 AP story available on foxnews.com. Documents. Bush's grandfather directed bank tied to man who funded Hitler. The article reads in part, quote, President Bush's grandfather was a director of a bank seized by the federal government because of its ties to a German industrialist who helped bankroll Adolf Hitler's rise to power, government documents show. Prescott Bush was one of seven directors of Union Banking Corp., a New York investment bank owned by a bank controlled by the Thiessen family, according to recently declassified National Archives documents reviewed by the Associated Press. Fritz Thiessen was an early financial supporter of Hitler, whose Nazi party, Thiessen believed, was preferable to communism. End quote. The article goes on to detail how union banking was seized by the government in 1942 under the Trading with the Enemy Act, and if it weren't for lack of resources due to the fact that America was at war at the time, Prescott Bush quite likely could have been convicted of treason. Instead, he got off scot-free to continue his political career, and we all know what happened with his progeny. This is a fascinating story, and it was broken by Webster Tarpley in a book he co-wrote in 1992, The Unauthorized Biography of George W. Bush. And again, that book is available online for free at tarpley.net, and I highly suggest you go and check that book out. But the story was rebroken, as it were, by John Buchanan in 2003, Mr. Buchanan was interviewed by Alex Jones for his 2005 documentary, Martial Law 9-11, Rise of the Police State. Let's turn to a clip from that interview in which Mr. Buchanan details his quest to get to the bottom of the Prescott Bush Union Banking Corp. Nazi Party Triangle. I've been an investigative reporter and a journalist for 35 years. I've worked in every major media market in the United States, and I've written for more than 100 newspapers and magazines nationally and internationally. So last September 17th, I became the first journalist in U.S. history to go to the U.S. National Archives and the Library of Congress and pour over the thousands of pages of documents in both places to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt or any refutation of the facts that Prescott Bush, the grandfather of George W. Bush, and George Herbert Walker, his maternal great-grandfather for whom his daddy is named, were Nazi traitors to the country who should have been tried for treason. Two weeks ago in uh, early August, 
uh, a major world newspaper, The Guardian of London, finally got on the story internationally, and they flew a renowned reporter of theirs named Duncan Campbell over to Washington to take me back to the archives and Library of Congress so that they could verify that these explosive documents were real and I didn't have forged copies. Prescott Bush was the grandfather of George W. Bush and the father of George Herbert Walker Bush, and George Herbert Walker Bush is named for his father-in-law, George Herbert Walker. Prescott Bush graduated from Yale in 1917 and was in Skull and Bones with E. Roland Harriman, who was the younger brother of W. Averill Harriman. The Bush family really had nothing going. They were essentially social climbers and opportunistic people. At the time that Prescott Bush met Dorothy Walker, he was a tire salesman. And George Herbert Walker, as all fathers do when their daughter's going to marry someone, uh, said in his heart, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not an appropriate thing socially that my daughter marry a tire salesman. So he brought... Prescott Bush first into Brown Brothers Harriman and then Union Banking Corporation. Uh, in actuality, it was anything but a bank. It was essentially a Nazi money laundering operation that had a lot of tentacles into a lot of different other businesses. They owned a, a shipping line called Hamburg American Line, for example, which was the first Nazi front business seized, although the line was no longer operational in 1942. In the early 1930s, it transported Nazi spies into the U.S., and then their promotional ads offered cash rewards to any American citizens who would go back on Hamburg American lines and proselytize for Hitler. Eight months after the U.S. had entered the war, the New York uh, Herald Tribune ran a front-page article, Hitler's Angel has three million in U.S. Bank. And it caused a major scandal and just rocked the world of politics. Brown Brothers Harriman, which George Herbert Walker and Prescott Bush were affiliated with and partners in, uh, worked with I.G. Farben, which operated Auschwitz. Prescott Bush... He did a number of things that were not only anti-American but were pro-Hitler, and he did all that he could to proselytize for Hitler and the rise of his Third Reich because the largest client, Fritz Thiessen, of his patron, W. Averill Harriman, dictated what kind of behavior he would practice to enhance his own career. So he was put on the board of directors of Union Banking Corporation, and he was also a shareholder in Union Banking Corporation along with E. Roland Harriman. But what's interesting about what the documents show is that they clearly state that all of the shareholders were phantom shareholders for Fitz Thiessen and did his bidding directly. So the point I'm making is it's not as if they bought these shares of stock as a passive investment to hopefully profit from the war. They were directly doing the bidding of the individual who built the Nazi war machine. Uh, some very shocking documents that I saw at the Library of Congress uh, two weeks ago on August 10th, uh, on August 9th, excuse me, had to do with the hearings of the McCormick-Dickstein Committee of November 1934, show that Prescott Bush and the uh, DuPont family, the Remington family, and J.P. Morgan tried to overthrow the U.S. government, assassinate FDR, and put a Hitler-style fascist state in place. 
I have in my possession testimony from the McCormick-Dickstein Committee in November of 1934 by one of the fascist plotters that they were going to follow Hitler's model exactly and impose martial law on the United States, round up unemployed people that were worthless to the economy and troublemakers and Jews and put them into internment camps. And their plan was, if necessary, to exterminate the people that could not be part of the effort. The only reason the coup attempt in 1934 didn't succeed is that they, led, they hired the wrong general to lead it, General Smedley Butler, the great Marine hero, two-time Congressional Medal of Honor winner, who worked with the plotters just long enough to be able to identify who they were and then blew the whistle on them to Congress. Incredibly, after being warned by the FBI and the Justice Department and the Treasury Department to cease and desist in their Nazi dealings, they had continued them until 1951. There had been 28 additional seizures of Nazi assets and Nazi business fronts between late 1942 and 1951, and that they had moved Nazi assets into Switzerland, Brazil, Argentina, and Panama, and they had continued to do business with their primary Nazi patron, who was Fritz Thiessen, who backed Hitler beginning in 1921, and who was the wealthiest man in Germany, and a steel and coal baron, who, with his partner, Friedrich Flick, essentially built the Nazi war machine along with I.G. Farben. In 1951, when uh, Fritz Thiessen died in Argentina, Union Banking Corporation was liquidated by the U.S. government, and Prescott Bush received $1.5 million for his holdings in his Nazi business, and that was the beginning of the Bush family fortune for all intents and purposes. George Bush doesn't take his philosophical foundation from the Bible or the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. George Bush takes his inspiration from what he learned in Skull and Bones and from the Thule Society that Hitler and Goebbels and Goring cut their teeth in, Bohemian Grove, these evil organizations that perpetrate the ugly things that these criminals are doing to this country for which they must be held accountable. Now you look at the Republican National Convention this week and you bring in Arnold Schwarzenegger to speak last night. Schwarzenegger is the son of a Nazi. He has praised Nazis. He has praised Hitler. He talked last night in terms like we will not falter, we will not waver, we will win this war on terror. He's a leader who doesn't flinch, who doesn't waver, and does not back down. Well, that's exactly the speeches that Hitler made after the Reichstag fire. Terrorism and the homeland being under attack are precisely the issues that Hitler used to subvert everything within the German system of government. This is a criminal regime. They not only emulate Hitler, but its genesis comes from Hitler. And I defy anyone, a historian, journalist, author, anyone, to come forward and disprove my premise that you cannot differentiate Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939 and the Reichstag fire and his attempt to dominate the world from George W. Bush's unprovoked invasion of Iraq and subversion of the Constitution through the Patriot Act after 9-1-1, which I submit is his Reichstag fire. Those incredulous souls out there who really can't believe all this uh, can go and recreate Mr. Buchanan's research easily enough, thanks to the wonders of the Internet. Again, from my website at this time index, you'll be able to find links to the documents themselves, including the article mentioned by Mr. Buchanan, Hitler's Angel has $3 million in U.S. banks. And as I mentioned before, Webster Tarpley's 
unauthorized biography of George W. Bush is available for free online at his website, tarpley.net. Also recommended is a YouTube video of Mr. Webster Tarpley talking to Paula Gloria further down the rabbit hole, in which he details not only the financial backing that came through Brown Brothers Harriman and the Union Banking Corp and Prescott Bush, but also the Hitler's London backers, which are often forgotten in history, but are no, nonetheless important, and contains a wonderful quote in which Webster Tarpley makes it quite clear that the Bush family fortunes come from Auschwitz. But I'd like to pick up on the latter half of the interview with Mr. Buchanan, in which he details his recent research, which has uncovered Prescott Bush's connection with the fascist coup that was organized by business leaders in America in 1934 at the height of the Depression. This fascist coup attempt is, of course, little documented today, but in the 1930s caused quite a sensation. The House Committee on Un-American Activities heard testimony from General Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler, as John Buchanan points out, was a major general in the U.S. Marine Corps, having received the Medal of Honor twice during his career, one of only 19 people to be twice awarded the Medal of Honor. He was highly decorated and highly thought of both by his commanders and by troops. This made him a valuable asset to those wealthy industrialists looking to organize a fascist coup in the United States. They knew that Mr. Butler could lead the troops even against the president himself. And they actively recruited him for this role in this fascist plot. Again, if this seems a bit overwhelming, let's turn to the BBC, who recently had a documentary on the subject. We'll turn to a clip from that documentary, which in and of itself is a bit of a whitewash, claiming that we can't really know the truth of it, because at the time the committee refused to investigate the people that Mr. Butler named as being implicated in the scandal, and thus we can never know if they really were involved. But the BBC makes it clear that at least the committee itself was quite convinced that there was a fascist plot afoot to seize Washington and institute a Nazi regime in America in the 1930s. And again, Prescott Bush was implicated in this by Mr. Butler. Let's take a listen to the beginning of that BBC documentary. First, Mike Thompson begins a paper chase that takes him into the dark heart of fascism in the America of the 1930s as Document investigates the White House coup. On the 21st of November 1934, the following rather chilling article appeared in the New York Times. It concerns the discovery of a planned coup that could have altered the course of American history. Yet today, hardly anyone knows anything about it. A plot of Wall Street interest to overthrow President Roosevelt and establish a fascist dictatorship backed by a private army of half a million ex-soldiers and others appeared before the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities, which began hearings on the charges. If these long-forgotten accounts can be relied on, I seem to be looking at an attempt to set up a fascist government in the land of the free. A coup that could have toppled one of America's most revered presidents, paved the way for a possible alliance with Italy and Germany, and thereby changed the complexion of World War II. Fascism was seen as a example to be learned from because it seemed like a quick fix. All you needed to do was get people to shape up. You could have had a handful of the wealthiest people in the United States found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. 
just what was this plot? Who were the Wall Street interests? Or was this nothing more than a moment of paranoia from a national media not renowned for its self-restraint? Well, the answers to some of these questions may have to wait until I can get my hands on the bulk of the evidence, documents detailing evidence heard behind closed doors by a congressional committee. But I already have the official statement released by that committee when it reported back to Congress. Its members clearly had no doubt that a fascist coup was in the offing. In the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. So such a plot, backed by powerful people, was waiting in the wings. That much is very clear. But how did it come to this? Well, it all happened during one of the bleakest moments in U.S. history. They used to tell me I was building a dream. We'll leave it there, but the documentary continues by enumerating the history of the plot and also the history of researchers like Mr. Buchanan who are seeking to uncover the truth of the plot from the historical archives, which have conveniently been purged of most of the relevant material on this case. Again, incredulous souls are invited to reproduce this research for themselves by typing in the phrase gangster for capitalism into Google and finding any of the various articles about Mr. Butler, who made the observation that, indeed, in his time in the U.S. Marine Corps, he was little more than a gangster for capitalism. He also gave a speech entitled, War is a Racket, making most of the same points. And again, that comes highly recommended. Also, YouTube clips of Mr. Butler's public testimony to the commission are online, although in scarce supply. That dearth of material looks to be corrected by Mr. Alex Jones, who in his next documentary, Endgame, due to be released next month, promises to have more material, including footage of Smetley Butler's testimony to the committee. It's difficult to even grasp what's being laid out before us in its entirety. What we're dealing with is a regime in the United States led by a man whose grandfather actually funded Hitler and attempted to stage a fascist overthrow of the elected government of the United States. It seems that Prescott Bush's ideas are coming to fruition, but perhaps two generations later than he thought they would. I do not make the comparison between the neocons in power and the Nazis lightly. Not only, of course, are there the numerous Prescott-Bush Nazi connections, which we have just documented, but as Webster Tarpley points out in that YouTube clip I cited earlier, the neocons, who will remember from episode 14 of the Corbett Report professing allegiance to Leo Strauss, a political science professor who taught at the University of Chicago, are in fact pledging their allegiance to Carl Schmitt, Dr. Leo Strauss's mentor, and, as it turns out, Hitler's lawyer. The connection between the neocons and the Nazis are numerous, in fact, too numerous to actually enumerate. We are living in very dangerous times in which madmen have their hands on the levers of powers, and we've already seen that they are not afraid to use them. 
We already know that Dick Cheney has tasked Stratcom with devising a contingency plan whereby the United States will automatically nuke Iran in the event of any terrorist attack on the United States, regardless of where it comes from. We've also got Dick Cheney on record numerous times this year stating that his fear is no longer terrorists armed with plane tickets and box cutters, but terrorists armed with nuclear weapons in the middle of a major metropolitan city. As big new Brzezinski himself warned to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in February, he is concerned that a terrorist attack will be launched on in the United States and blamed on Iran as an excuse to go to war with Iran. And as we remember from episode 2 of the Corber Report, World War III starts in Iran. I urge you to look at a recent article from the Corbett Report regarding recent groundbreaking discoveries of Chinese weapons ending up in Taliban's hands, with best guesses indicating that those weapons are being funneled through Iran to the Taliban in order to set up a proxy army to strike at the United States armed forces should the U.S. go into Iran. We also have the Russians who this week unveiled the father of all bombs, which is even larger than the Americans' mother of all bombs, which is a non-nuclear technology which produces nuclear blast-like results, meaning that we could have a non-nuclear war with the exact same devastation and implications as a nuclear war, minus the radioactive fallout. This is not something to look forward to, and this comes on the heels of numerous reports in the preceding weeks in which the Russians have been flying bomber aircraft in violation of NATO airspace. And to top it all off, we have, as we remember from last week's episode, the B-52 bombers, which were accidentally loaded with live nuclear warheads and flown from Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana on August 30th. Barksdale Air Force Base being the main staging area for aircraft headed for the Middle East Theater of Operations. Are they staging for Iran? Those incredulous souls out there who question everything, and I encourage that, I invite you to look up all this information for yourself, but those incredulous souls who don't believe a word of any of this will at least recognize that once the Cheniacs in power set off a nuclear device in an American city as a pretext for launching a war on Iran, we will have the historical equivalent of Hitler staging an attack by the Poles on a German outpost in order to justify his invasion of Poland. And we all know that started World War II. The answer to all this is simple. 9-11 truth is the key to defusing the Nazi fascist madmen's trick of state-sponsored terrorism by which they can herd the masses into illegal invasions of foreign countries. The time to get into 9-11 Truth is now. Get active or get radioactive. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett. Join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. We're told that after the war the Nazis vanished without a trace But the Italians, the fascists, still dream of a master race the history books they tell of their defeat in 45 But they all came out of the woodwork On the day the Nazi died They say the prisoner of Spandau was a symbol of defeat Was Hess remained in prison then the fascists they were beat So the promise of an Aryan world would never materialise So why did they all come out of the woodwork On the day the Nazi died The world is riddled with maggots The maggots are getting fat 
They're making a tasty meal of all the bosses and bureaucrats. They're taking over the boardrooms and they're fat and full of pride. And they all came out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died. So if you meet with these historians, I'll tell you what to say. Tell them that the Nazis never really went away. They're out there burning houses down and peddling racist lies. And we'll never rest again until every Nazi dies.